Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Slow Newscast. This week, we're doing something slightly different and I think a bit more ambitious. We've spent months investigating a prison in Iran called Evin, And it's in the news because it's the place where Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has been held and it's where she may remain after it was announced just days ago that she was going to face another trial after nearly four years already incarcerated away from her daughter and her husband on spying charges. But Evan's story stretches back much longer than Nazanin's. This is a prison that has been going for 40 years. So join us as we tell you the story of a glaring human rights abuse at the heart of the Iranian state. The doorbell rang. It was around 9, 10pm at night. My mother called my name and I knew something was terribly wrong. So I opened the bathroom door, came out, two big guns (laughs) pointed in my face. I just really, like something happened to my brain. It just, it just disconnected. When revolution came to Iran, a lot of people thought that they were on the brink of a brighter future. It was 1979. The Shah had been overthrown and an Islamic Republic had been formed. After decades, it seemed as if things were finally changing. But then the arrests began and the torture and the executions and the mass incarceration, the newly anointed Ayatollah ruled with brutality against anyone who disagreed with him. And one prison became central to his regime's operation, a place called Evin Prison. And until recently, Evin was unknown to me. I learned about it when I followed the story of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the dual British-Iranian citizen and mother who's been held there for more than four years. And as often happens, I then found myself hearing Evin Prison related to more and more stories coming out of Iran. And then it became clear to me, Evin is easy to miss because it's hidden in plain sight. And I mean that quite literally. It sits in the capital, Tehran, tucked into the mountains in the north of the city. And it's a place of horror. For decades, it's been a place of violence, of isolation, disease, starvation, rape, torture, execution... But it's a place, too, of survival, of hope. Evin is unseen, its prisoners unheard, its systems, like its cells, guard secrets. And the more we dug into this, the more it became clear 
To understand what happens inside this secretive prison is to understand the journey Iran has been on in the last 40 years. It's to understand the workings of a state that has spent decades seeking absolute allegiance from its citizens at all costs. A state that is detaining foreign nationals on spurious charges, including women like Nazanin, as a deliberate diplomatic tactic. I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast. And this week, we're telling the story of Evin Prison, a place we have spent months investigating from its birth in the 1970s to now. Our reporter, my colleague Xavier Greenwood, tracked down eight former prisoners to take us inside to understand this dark place, which has become such a powerful symbol of modern Iran under the Islamic Republic. And I must say now, there's a chance that you might find some of what you'll hear next distressing. I was born in 1965, and back then Iran was not an Islamic Republic. The Shah, we called our king the Shah, was in power. And I was born in a Christian family. This is Marina Uh, Nemet. Marina grew up in Tehran, and like so many women before her, she got caught in the crossfires of change. I had... I mean, normal is such a vague word, but, you know, whatever can resemble normal. She remembers an Iran before the Islamic Republic. So we had a cottage by the Caspian, by the Caspian Sea. And I spent happy summers there with my friends. I had just become a teenager and I was partying with my friends on the beach, uh, wearing bikinis, dancing to the Bee Gees. Uh, My mother was a hairdresser and my dad was a ballroom dancing instructor. So everything looked fine. You know, I loved reading poetry. I loved literature. I read a lot. I loved Donnie Osmond. You know, just your, I guess, you know, even to Western standard, your average teenager at the age of 13. And then a revolution happened. The crowd shouted death to the Shah. It happened like this. In January 1978, a group of students staged a protest defending the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was at that point a fiercely religious and very charismatic opponent of the ruler, the Shah. But security forces cracked down on the protesters and killed as many as 300 people. But that was the moment, that moment, which lit the revolutionary torch, as it were. After that, waves and waves of protests swept across the country for months. Autumn 1978. Anti-Shah demonstrations had grown to such proportions that the Shah declared martial law in most of Iran's cities. By September, eight months after those first marches, the government massacred more than 100 protesters in Tehran on a day now known as Black Friday. But it didn't put out the fire. By the 1st of February 1979, a year and a month later, That charismatic dissident, Ayatollah Khomeini, whose following had been growing, returned triumphant to Tehran from a 16-year exile. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. He was greeted on the streets by five million Iranians. Five million. What had been a well-planned arrival ceremony soon turned into chaos. The streets were lined with literally millions of supporters. Some had slept on the sidewalks overnight to make sure they had a good position to view the motorcade. Ten days later, Tehran's radio station announced, this is the voice of Tehran, the voice of true Iran 
the voice of the revolution. Fueled by hundreds of thousands of idealistic young people who were furious at the political and economic inequalities around them, the Shah and a 2,500-year-old monarchy were overthrown. In April 1979, Iran voted to become an Islamic Republic, and in December, a constitution was passed, installing the Ayatollah as supreme leader, granted unlimited power in the new religious state. But he turned out not to be the redeemer that many had hoped for. For Marina, there were no more days dancing to the Bee Gees. This is how she describes that profound moment of change. So then suddenly everything is political. Mm. I mean, what you wear is political. Uh, what you say is political. What you breathe is political. What you eat, you know, because it's, it's an Islamic government. And these were the early days. You know, yeah. women were not allowed to look pretty anymore. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It took a few months, but mm. everything became illegal. Like. I became very angry. Who was this anger and frustration uh, channeled against? It was the Islamic Republic of Iran. Because it had taken away all of our fun and replaced it with ugliness, darkness and stupidity. At school, Marina's maths teacher was replaced. And this is the moment that things began to turn for her. Her only qualification was that she really believed in the Islamic Republic. You know, this period, really what I call it now, is the Islamic Cultural Revolution. What they did is they put the, their own people, the members of the Revolutionary Guard, the Islamic committees, uh, they put them in educational institutions. So here we are, you know, we had one of the best calculus teachers. Now, this woman was just talking nonsense. And so... Marina took action. And then one day you get to the point that I'm not going to swallow this anymore. And the teacher just told me that if I want to leave, I can. Fabulous. I collected my books, walked out. One of the happiest moments of my life because I saw something that was wrong and I stood up to it. Over the next couple of years, Marina's anger at the regime grew. Across the country, the Ayatollah was gaining even more power. More and more of the minutiae of everyday life were under surveillance. The state imposed a dress code that required all women to wear the hijab. Music, alcohol, women and men swimming together, even wearing ties. So many freedoms were being taken away from Iranian citizens by the Islamic Republic. And then, in 1980, an invasion by Iraq under Saddam Hussein helped the crackdown further because suddenly any opposition could be crushed under the guise of unity and national security. And by this point, arrests and executions were snowballing across the country. And at the centre of it all was Evin Prison. Evin was built by the Shah in 1972 in the former home of a late Iranian prime minister. It held political prisoners from its very creation, but its population really began ballooning in the early 1980s, when the Islamic Republic started detaining all of its opponents and policing even the smallest parts of people's lives. And it grew physically too. Two new blocks, six wards and 600 solitary cells were added. Nobody was immune. These acts of defiance, they just accumulated. And eventually I heard from one of the teachers that the principal had a, had a list on her desk. 
of all the, they call it the anti-revolutionaries. There were like 30, 40 names on it, and I was one of them. And a few months later, on a cold day in winter, 16-year-old Marina was taken. Uh, the doorbell rang. It was around 9, 10 p.m. at night. So I opened the bathroom door, came out, two big guns <laughs> pointed in my face. And I think I entered a state of shock. I mean, even looking back, a state of shock that hung on for many, many years. Like there was a disconnect suddenly between me and reality. Nothing. There was, there was numbness. I felt nothing. In the dark of the night, the Iranian state arrested a schoolgirl. They took with them her Jane Austen books, her Narnia collection, and her Charles Dickens books as supposed evidence that she was plotting against the state. Then when we arrived at the gates of the prison, huge area north of Tehran, um, surrounded by tall walls and barbed wire and guards, there, just before entering the gates, they gave me a strip of cloth and they said, blindfold yourself. Then they took me in a building and they told, told me to sit down on the floor. It was, I could see a little bit from underneath the blindfold. There were a lot of people sitting on the floor in the hallway. They were very quiet and it was awfully quiet. Then a girl sat, was told to sit next to me. Again, I could see a little bit and she was crying her head off. And it really annoyed me because not only that it was high pitched and it was just getting on my nerves, but in a place like that, in a quiet place, I guess subconsciously I knew you don't want to draw attention to yourself. So I tried to comfort her. I said, you know, please be quiet. Why are you crying? Oh, you know, don't be scared. And then she kept saying, we're all going to die. And I kept telling her, no, we're not all going to die. Well, I was wrong. She was right. It's hard to imagine what Marina went through during that time, but she wasn't alone. Evin, in the early 70s, only held about 300 prisoners. But by 1977, that number had jumped to around 1,500. But it was really under the Islamic Republic that it became a tool of state repression. According to Irvand Abrahamian, a highly respected historian of the Middle East, the population had swollen to around 15,000 people by 1983. And according to the Iranian writer Shanush Parsipur, the average age of a prisoner in those early years of the Republic was around 19 and a half. To put Evan's size at that time into context, consider these two numbers. The UK's largest prison currently holds around 2,000 people and New York's Rikers Island, thought to be the world's largest penal colony, holds around 15,000 prisoners. But obviously it physically grew too. It became this concrete monster sitting quite incongruously in this landscape of lush green hills in northern Tehran. There, among the sycamore trees, was the heart of the state's violent crackdown. Evan definitely does have a particular place in the Iranian consciousness. This um, is Kaveh uh, Shirouz, a lawyer and human rights activist born in Iran, but now based in Toronto. You know, it may or may not be the, the worst place, but it's certainly a place that has been used as a prison for many years. Iran's rulers, current rulers, came to power saying that they were going to turn Evin from a prison into a university. And it's, you know, a, a sick joke of the revolution that it's become a thousand times worse and home to 
you know, many, many more political prisoners than were held there before. His uncle was tortured and executed in the Iranian prison system. And Carvey is remarkable. He spent the last 15 years trying to hold the Iranian state to account for its crimes in the 1980s. Um, what I came to learn about Evin is, is pretty much, I think, what I've come to learn about the Iranian prison system and the Iranian political system as a whole. I mean, it was a place of torture, of rape, of executions, of real sadism. And it, it was a place where there was a real pressure to break prisoners, uh, to turn them against each other, to turn them into informants. Um, it almost didn't even matter what the verdict of the kangaroo courts had been. There were a number of prisoners who had been given a sentence, let's say of five years, of seven years. They had served that time, and yet they continued to be kept in Evin because they were deemed to be you know, the steadfast in their opposition to the regime. And Evin came to symbolize uh, the Iranian regime's attempt at complete control of the opposition and complete um, an, an attempt at destruction of any sort of opposition to its rule. It became a symbol of an attempted uh, building of a totalitarian regime at any cost. And caught up in it all was Marina, a stubborn schoolgirl swept from her comfortable Tehran house to the dungeons of Evan. A man came, called my name, took me to a room. He started, first he read me from the Quran. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, really? Really? You're reading me from the Quran? He was curious about my religion because he had heard that I was Christian. So he wanted, apparently I was the first Christian he had seen. I'm surprised. I'm the first Christian he had seen in Evina and he wanted to figure out, like, what are you? What do you believe in? And then he started questioning me about school, about what I had done, about the protests I had um, attended. He was very calm. He told me that he was very disappointed that I didn't want to tell the truth. Then they took me to another room and a man named Hamid, he handcuffed me and then tied me to the bear with a bed, tied my, I was lying down on my stomach, tied my feet to the bed, took off my socks, my shoes, and then lashed the soles of my feet with a length of cable about an inch thick. The pain was just so horrific. I had not, I could not comprehend how can anything, like, it's just a different kind of pain. And then For much of her time in Evin, Marina was held in the 209 section of the prison where political prisoners were held. It's called 209 because that's the internal Evin telephone number for that section. Prisoners are walked down some stairs into a basement and into one of about 90 cells which measure around two meters by two meters. They're blindfolded whenever they're outside. Inside the cell, a light is kept on for 24 hours a day. The taller cells have a small window to the outside world, way up high. But the smaller ones only have a little barred window, nearly always closed, out onto the corridor. It's the most notorious part of Evin. One of our interviewees described it as a fortress within a fortress. According to another former prisoner, even members of the government need permission to enter. Today, 209 is nominally run by the Ministry of Intelligence. But it's worth saying here that different sections in Evan and even different parts of those sections are run by completely different organisations. Some groups answer to the president, some to the factions of the Revolutionary Guards, some only to the supreme leader, the Ayatollah. 
Many don't fall under the power of the prison's authority or even the elected government. So it's like a mirror image of the Iranian state. Iran is itself deeply factional, where multiple centers of power overlap, where hardliners, reformists and conservatives are in competition with each other and among themselves. And there's this story that a former British foreign secretary once told us, which is illuminating. He told us that he went on holiday to Iran in October 2015, and the car that he was in one day was forced to stop by three men who got in, one holding a gun, and then he was bundled into an unmarked white car. The former foreign secretary thought he was being kidnapped. I mean, you would. But he was actually being protected. Here's how he described it. Anyway, it gradually emerged these were the police, uh, and they were on our side. Uh, And what was going on was that they were protecting us, not from criminals or terrorists, I'm used to that, but they were protecting us from other agents of the same state. It's only in Iran can this take place. You've got this broken-down power structure and a competitive power structure uh, that, you know, I get police protection against (laughs) other agents of the same state. And this fragmentation had grown in the Iranian state since the 1980s, where struggles for power were playing out inside and outside the prison. One day, Marina's ward was being run by the Revolutionary Guards, founded by the Ayatollah to protect the Islamic political system. The next day, by the Islamic committees, who were there to uphold religious and moral standards. We had nightly executions for quite some time. I mean, you would just wait, and then at around midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., you would hear gunshots. People were being executed. And we had cellmates that had family in the prison, like brothers, they had their brothers, their sisters, their mom, their dad. And they would get very upset when the execution, because it could be their loved one. Then there were also mock executions. So they would take people, I was taken as well, uh, they would take people and pretend to shoot them. And it was relatively common. They actually did shoot one girl. She tried to run. And they shot like they shot her right in front of me. And she bled there. I don't know if she died or not. I think she died. But I'm not quite sure. And this, uh, what, what happened to me was that uh, my interrogator, Ali, he called me for interrogation. It had been five, six months after my arrest. He told me I had a death sentence. And yeah. he had reduced it to life in prison. And that I would be there forever and nobody cared. And he said I had to become his wife or he would arrest my parents or my, and my boyfriend. Marina was forced to marry her interrogator and to convert to Islam. It took me a while to take this in. It sent shivers down my spine. She was even brought to his home occasionally, taken to meet his family, all while she remained imprisoned in Evan. Marina speaks about how Ali and his family were nice to her, how they saved her life. I can't get over the facts, which are that she was a child, forced into marriage, afraid of death. So when you put someone into a situation like that, a young woman, I wasn't necessarily even looking at it that I was necessarily being abused because I was his wife. Your mindset of, I'm a prisoner, and they keep telling you that you're an enemy of God and an enemy of Islam. And he had reduced my life, my uh, death sentence to life, so he was actually 
saving my life, if you think about it. Over the course of the 80s, things got worse. It's thought that tens of thousands of people were executed in Iranian prisons, including in Evin. Over that period, their bodies put in unmarked mass graves. This is Evin Prison at visiting time. Today, the main... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Main execution center for Ayatollah Khomeini's enemies. In this enormous prison, hundreds of men, women, and teenagers accused of helping armed opposition groups have died by firing squad. The Islamic Republic reportedly even asked families to pay for the bullets that killed their loved ones. It was, by all accounts, a long period of massacre. And the height of the state's violence came in the summer of 1988, at the end of the Iran-Iraq war. The main opposition group attacked a province in western Iran, prompting the Ayatollah to order that if Iran's political prisoners didn't demonstrate their loyalty to Islam, they would be killed. Death commissions were formed to decide who should live and who should die. And in the space of just a few months, as many as 30,000 political prisoners were executed. One UN judge has described this as the worst crime against humanity since the concentration camps of World War II. This is the verdict of a tribunal into the killings. The evidence speaks for itself. It constitutes overwhelming proof that systemic and systematic abuses of human rights were committed by and on behalf of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Graves of executed prisoners stretching out as far as the eye can see. Men were arrested at 10 in the morning and dead by 11. Rows of prisoners were shot by firing squad. The legacy of abuse is extensive and inevitably persists to the present day. And the key thing to know is this. Members of the death commissions still serve in Iran's highest offices. This is not a distant memory. This is woven into the fabric of Iran now. Marina survived this period. She survived this moment when death and imprisonment were being used as a form of absolute domestic control in service of ideology. 
She was released from Evan after two years and two months. Her husband, Ali, was assassinated by a rival faction in September 1983. Six months later, Ali's parents paid to secure her release. She was lucky. So I was studying abroad in 2014, and then when I returned back home, London, my parents had flown to Iran for various reasons. This is the voice of Anna Diamond, a 26-year-old now living in London. No, I never thought I would be arrested. It yeah. wasn't something that I, I was afraid of. Yeah. She travelled back to her birth country of Iran in 2014, aged 19, when she was still a student at King's College in London. Um, immediately at the airport, you know, I, it was just very unusual. I, she I was questioned had... at the airport and she had her passport, her phone, her laptop, all confiscated. For two years, Anna and her father, trapped in the country, were subject to interrogations in secret locations across Tehran. The questions would be, you know, various about what, what have you been up to in the UK? What is your source of income? Why did you study at King's College? Is it affiliated with the Queen? They actually want you to explain things into detail so that they can pick and choose out of things you've said and yeah. turn it against you. And this is, unfortunately, I realise it's quite late into the interrogations. Yeah. She was presented with Facebook pictures of herself with David Cameron, who was the British Prime Minister at the time, and with Boris Johnson as evidence that she was a spy. But they had been taken when she was a spokeswoman for the group Conservative Youth when she was a teenager. This all brings us to early 2016. And on the 500th day after Anna had arrived and was trapped in Iran, that morning, she was leaving her Tehran apartment. So on 12th of January, when I was heading out at 7.30 a.m., I was a van pulled up in front of me and I and I had a, I had my headphones on and then I put I put my headphones out and I thought she was asking for a direction because she came out of a car or like a van. And then she took my phone out of my hand and I'm just like, can I help you? And she obviously had the chador on and, and the Revolutionary Guards jacket. Um, she asked me if I was, you know, this person, she said my name and and I said yes. And then two other people came out, two guys, men. One had a camera and the other one had a gun. And then two other females, so three females in total, they came out. And next thing I knew, I was in the van with my head between my knees. Anna's arrest happened more than three decades after Marina's. But since 2014, more than 30 dual nationals, mainly British Iranians and US Iranians, have been detained in Iran, typically on wild and unproven spying charges. So while the imprisonment of Iranians still continues, Evin has expanded beyond just a tool of controlling domestic opposition. It's also the ground zero of larger geopolitical tactics. But Kaveh Shirouz can explain it much better than I can. I think it gets primarily two things. One, it's a way of intimidating its own population and intimidating its its diaspora. It tells the diaspora that if you speak out against us, even when you're living outside, you know, 
the outside the country, um, you will pay. Either you will pay or your family members will pay. And the second thing is, is frankly, it's it's a financial calculation for them. I mean, you look at what's happening with uh, Nazanin uh, Zaghari Ratcliffe, the, the British Iranian who is now held in prison in Iran, and the Iranian regime is is not even hiding it. They don't even pretend that it's about anything other than money. I mean, they're what Kaveh is referring to here is a decades-old, four hundred million pound debt that Iran has demanded to be paid back by the British government in return for the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. The UK has refused to pay it, but Nazanin was being used as leverage. So in Anna and Nazanin's case, both held in Evan, they're bargaining chips. Here's Anna again. So you're in solitary 24 hours a day. You get to have 30 minutes um, fresh air in in the morning. Um, So when I came out the first day, it was raining. And as someone who's religious, I just thought I would cry out for God. <laughs> and I did, and I, was, and I was really screaming, crying loud. And next thing I know, my dad screams back and asking me, is everything okay? Yeah. Why are you crying? Did they do something? And then I was like, holy shit, we're in, in the same building. Yeah. I only realized we're in Evan on, I think it was 30 or the 35th day when I was okay. taken back to court. And I asked, but like, what is this place? And, and and the prosecutor laughed and he was like, well, what do you think? It's Hotel Evan. And they referred to us not as prisoners or detainees, but as guests. So that's when I realized that, oh my goodness, like I am in the Evan prison. Conditions vary hugely across wards and types of prisoner. Dual nationals, relatively speaking, tend to be better treated than other prisoners, but physical and psychological violations still occur. Anna, for example, was forced to have a virginity test and, like Marina, a mock execution. So the forced virginity test occurred in the health clinic. And, and I think why. it's important to mention here that Evan reflects how Iran has weaponized chauvinism, how the subordination of women is structural, it's built into the architecture of the place and the country, how the sexual suspicion of women is systemic and routine. Here's Anna. It was for the purpose of seeing if if you've not only done espionage, but like something like sex espionage. So they do that to see if you have potentially collected information from people by sleeping with them. But I think now looking back, I think it's just one form of psychological torture and intimidation. The experience was, as you can imagine, extremely traumatic. I don't even know what you look for when you're looking for someone's virginity, but just invasive, humiliating, degrading, looking into your private areas. Having your legs up in the air with your, you know, private area exposed, like you're just scared and then you have blindfold on, you're like, what is happening? Like, where did she go? And then um, came the next stage, a mock execution. They transferred himself free, kept me there for a few days told me that the court had ordered them to carry out the sentence. They never said like, oh, which is the execution. But the way they made it sound, like you were carrying out sentence, which was a death sentence. So naturally, that's what you think. So the day when they took me out was, it was around like 4 or 5 a.m. And I kind of immediately knew what it was for because I had heard that my uncle's execution happened during like dawn, uh, early morning. 
and I felt like I was like reliving the, the, the tales that I had heard of my uncle. So, so they took me, they put me in a van and blindfolded. I had, you know, the floral white chador and it's like very cinematic. And I say cinematic because I saw myself from someone else's eyes. Like it was such an out of body experience. But then I was put on my knees, so they asked me to get on my knees. And I wish, I wish I knew that, you know, Iran doesn't execute by, at least anymore, by a shooting squad. Um, so for the most part, the trauma that I experienced was inside my head. And then I'm there like crying hysterically, like begging, I don't know who, because I can't see anyone. And then after a while, he just said, get up, we're going. Like, it's not happening today. But the interesting part is when he said that, I almost felt even more, like, petrified. And, like, I, did, I obviously didn't want to die, but like, there was that sense that, oh my God, this just keeps dragging. Like at that point in my head, my life ended because I was so prepared for three, four days before when I was kept in cell, in cell I had prepared myself for that moment. Anna was eventually released in August 2016 after eight months in Evan, most of which were in solitary confinement. She was only able to leave the country in May 2018 and her dad had remained there until 2018 too. The horror appears to continue. Just last week, Amnesty International documented violations against the people detained in the November 2019 protests. Victims of arrest reportedly included children and bystanders seeking medical care for gunshot wounds. Amnesty International documented the cases of 75 people, including 68 men and seven women. Allegedly, they were the subject of torture techniques, which included waterboarding and electric shocks. And political prisoners still face execution. Two Kurdish men were executed as recently as the 13th of July in a prison in the province of West Azerbaijan. Two other former prisoners we interviewed were friends in Evin with Shirin Alamhuli, a young Kurdish woman who was executed in 2010. The prisoners described her as the kindest person they met in Evin. Even the gangs and murderers, they said, respected and loved her. So what happened to Marina and to Anna? Well, Anna suffers from PTSD and heart problems that developed during her time in prison. And Marina lives in Toronto now. But the scars remain, and it all came to a head for her about 20 years ago. You know, I was living a very normal life. I never had any episodes. I never had anything, no symptoms, nothing at all. But the only thing that, like, I mean, I, it's weird. I knew it, but I didn't re-verbalize it or think about it, was that I was still emotional. No, I mean, I yeah. married my boyfriend. I had children. I came to a stand and started in New York, but I never really felt anything. I didn't love the man. I, I married because I couldn't feel love. I didn't really love, love my children. I cared. I was a good mother. I did everything to the book. So it, it was when my mother died, something happened and my dad said something to me. I just exploded. And 
I had basically a psychotic episode. And I think I started to actually feel things only after I got my dog four years ago. Because with people, I have difficulty uh, processing emotion. It's just a fact. Uh, it's much easier for me to process emotions with animals. Honestly, that's the only like time in the day that I can feel like human, like I was before all of this happened. Yeah. You know, they are my connection to a sense of normalcy because I have lost absolutely all faith in the human race. It's just gone. This has been an unprecedented few months for Iran. A 50% rise in the fuel price in November saw the biggest protests in the country since the revolution. A few months later, Iran halted the execution of three of the protesters after a huge online campaign. In January, the US assassinated Qasem Soleimani, one of Ayatollah Khamenei's right-hand men. And for a moment, it seemed like there was a moment of solidarity between Iranians and the regime. And then just days later, the Revolutionary Guards accidentally shot down a passenger plane and killed everybody on board. The mood shifted. Now, coronavirus has torn through Iran, which appears to have become the epicenter of the pandemic in the Middle East. The country has tried to hide its true infection numbers. President Hassan Rouhani, who answers to the Supreme Leader, the Ayatollah, has insisted that the country can't shut down the economy to slow down the spread. And you can see why. Even before the pandemic, the currency was already collapsing and inflation was skyrocketing. And the country was crippled by economic sanctions from the US. And when the pandemic hit in March, Iran was forced to ask the IMF for $5 billion in emergency funding. Meanwhile, the 106-acre site of Evin Prison still holds thousands of prisoners, with more than 100 political prisoners. We don't know the precise numbers, of course, because that place is still shrouded in secrecy. But you'd be forgiven for wondering whether the regime actually looks quite weak. I think the Islamic Republic is fragile in, in many ways. His um, It's economically very fragile. Um, it's under sanctions and it's just a, the vast corruption of, of the regime has prevented it from being able to provide for its people. Um, it has no legitimacy anymore. Um, a lot of the protests that you've seen in the past couple of years, especially the ones that you saw in November of last year, um, were by and large led by working class people, the, the very people that were kind of the, the regime had been counting on um, as its, as its uh, you know, last line of defense. And it's a regime that, uh, you know, internationally is, is isolated. It's an international prior. So in a lot of ways, um, it's a very weak regime. And I think the, the reason why you see it lash out at its own people um, and, you know, imprison so many people, kill so many people is because it's weak. Strong states don't need to do that. Having said that, the Iranian regime is incredibly br brutal, as it has demonstrated in its 40-year history. Um, and it will not go gently. It will fight to the last bullet, to the last drop of blood um, to ensure that it keeps power. You know, anyone that wants democracy, anyone that wants freedom, um, you know, they will end up paying a huge price. So um, even though I, I see it as a weak state, I see it as a state that will not hesitate to use force and use brutality to put down any attempt um, at, uh, you know, getting, getting
getting to democracy and and freedom. And I regret to say that I think the liberation of Iran will be a long, drawn out, and unfortunately, uh, bloody process. I, I, I hope that's not the case, but I don't see this current regime um, simply realizing the error of its ways and 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 you know walking away. I think they will put up a fight. But of course, there's hope. There always is if you look hard enough. A new Iran, if it ever comes, might even be born from a place like Evin. And the reason I say this is because of one final and incredibly powerful story, which I want to leave you with, our last interviewee. A legend in the Talmud says that when a child is born, it carries a candle over its head as a symbol that it knows everything. In the moment of its birth, an angel blows the candle out and the child forgets it all. During the path of its life, it must learn to remember everything it had forgotten. This is Mariam, a 37-year-old filmmaker and an actress who lives in Germany. She was born in Evan Prison. And that was a clip from her documentary that she made in 2019 in which she investigates the circumstances of her own birth. And in one scene, she talks to her mother's best friend, who was a cellmate of hers in the prison, about the moment when Mariam's mother returned from the prison hospital, baby in her arms. And I actually find it quite hard to say this without tearing up. But the friend describes the outburst of joy and love from everyone around, that there were tears and applause filling the prison block. And I think it's a perfect symbol of the resilience and the resistance that is so clear from speaking to all of these former prisoners. The fight for a better world is always there. Because what she says, on one hand, it sounds beautiful and it sounds like the happy end to it. At the same time, we so strongly feel what she leaves out. And what she leaves out is that it is a torture prison and that they did hear every night shootings of uh, when the former prisoners were being killed and tortured and screamed and plugged and all of this. To me, the biggest lesson that came to me was to accept, and this is a nearly even, it's not its not personal, not political, it's like even beyond that, it has even a, some, a spiritual dimension, I would say, or even, I don't know, is that everything carries somehow both, they, they, they interconnect, it's this, the experience of this absolute darkness and atrocity of what life can look like, and at the same time, knowing that there. There's so much resilience, there's so much beauty, there's so much solidarity possible at the same time. And that these things somehow, yeah, that they often come hand in hand. And the question is, can you bear that? So what I've learned from this story is that Evan is unquestionably an outrage. It's one of the world's worst human rights scandals sitting in plain sight in Iran's capital, woven into the state's very fabric. But it's also clear, Evin is a failure. And in that way, it's also a true symbol of the Iranian state. Because you learn a lot about a country from its prisons. They allow you to see how a state copes and camouflages its problems. In the US, it's race. In the UK, it's drugs and poverty. And what Iran is trying to camouflage in Evin is the eternal threat of freedom and resistance and openness among its own people. And from hearing Anna and Marina and others speak, it's clear that is an impossible task.
Thank you for listening. At Tortoise, the newsroom from which we produce this podcast, we've spent all of this week looking at Iran and Evan, and we've published, in addition to this audio investigation, an interactive map of the prison. We've published fuller interviews with some of the former prisoners that you've heard from in this podcast, and we've also pulled together a list of human rights groups and charities that you can support if you felt moved by what you heard. You can get access to all of that by getting our app. You just have to go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30 day free trial. And of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast and you enjoyed it, you found it interesting, support us, give us a review or share it. Thank you so much. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.